This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Also, make sure to check out and subscribe to our YouTube original channel, UCTV Prime, available only on YouTube at youtube.com slash UCTV Prime. This UCTV podcast is sponsored in part by Audible.com, your destination for the widest selection of digital audiobooks available, including many by guests you've heard here on UCTV. Audible.com is offering UCTV podcast listeners a free 30-day trial subscription and one free audiobook download. Just visit audibletrial.com slash UCTV to sign up. That's audibletrial.com slash UCTV. And thanks. I'm Margaret Chowning, a, a professor of Latin American history and chair of the Moses Lectureship Committee. We're pleased, along with the graduate division, to uh, have invited this year Emmanuel Saiz, this year's speaker in the Bernard Moses Memorial Lecture Series. As a condition of this bequest, we're obligated, we're also delighted, but we're obligated to tell you how the endowments supporting the lectures came to UC Berkeley. In 1937, University of California President Robert Gordon Sproul and the UC Board of Regents established the Bernard Moses Memorial Lectureship in the Social Sciences. The lectureship honors the memory of the late Bernard Moses, a professor of history and political science at the University of California from 1875 to 1911, and an emeritus professor from 1911 until his death in 1930. Professor Moses earned a worldwide reputation for his contributions to understanding the problems of the Latin American republics uh, and uh, was a pioneer scholar of Latin American history. Professor Moses served as a member of the United States Philippine Commission from 1900 to 1904. Past lecturers have included Herma Hill Kay, Lloyd Ullman, Nicholas Ryasanovsky, George Lakoff, Kenneth Stamp, Eugene Hamill, Ken Jowett, and Carolyn Merchant. Now I'd like to say a few words about our lecturer today, Emmanuel Saez. Professor Saez is Professor of Economics and Director of the Center for Equitable Growth at the University of California at Berkeley. His research focuses on tax policy and inequality both from theoretical and empirical perspectives. Jointly with Thomas Piketty, he has constructed long-term, long-run historical series of income inequality in the United States that have been widely discussed in the public debate. His research has advanced our understanding of income inequality in relation to taxation, a critical and timely issue in the wake of the recent economic recession. His landmark article, Striking It Richer, The Evolution of Top Incomes in the United States, revealed the vast and growing gap between the incomes of the nation's highest earners, the 1%, and the rest of Americans. Size has not only pioneered useful methods for understanding long-term income patterns, but has also explored theoretical possibilities for equitable growth. He continues to probe the dynamics of income inequality and produce models for optimal taxation. Emmanuel Saez received a BA in mathematics at the uh, École Normale Supérieure in 1994. 
He earned both an MD in economics from the Department of Laboratory of Applied and Theoretical Economics and a PhD in economics from MIT in 1999. He served as an assistant professor of economics at Harvard University from 1999 to 2002 and joined the Berkeley faculty in 2002. He was awarded the John Bates Clark Medal of the Economic, uh, American Economic Association in 2009 and a MacArthur Fellowship in 2010. Please join me in welcoming Professor Emmanuel Seiss. Thank you. Thank you very much for uh, this introduction. Thank you all for uh, coming uh, tonight to this lecture. So tonight I will talk about uh, the research that I've been uh, carrying out with uh, many other uh, researchers about income inequality, evidence, and implications. So let me uh, introduce uh, the topic. So as you uh, all know, free market uh, economies generate substantial economic growth, but they also generate uh, inequality. And indeed, historically, this has been the main uh, criticism of free market uh, economies. And therefore, this raises two uh, set of issues for economists. The first one is uh, a, a positive question about measuring and understanding uh, inequality. What is the level of inequality? How does it change uh, over time? And what are the factors that drive uh, inequality? And the second, this raises uh, policy questions. That is, should the government try and reduce uh, inequality using redistributive policies such as uh, taxes, transfer programs, and an array of uh, regulatory uh, policies? So those are the questions that I would like to uh, talk about tonight. So a simple way uh, to measure uh, inequality is uh, to ask the question, a simple question, what share of total market income goes to various groups in the income distribution, such as the top 1%? So what fraction of total income does uh, the top 1% uh, earn? So it turns out that to answer uh, that question, income tax statistics are probably the most valuable uh, resource because they have been available for a very long time, almost a century in the United States. Actually, you know, the federal individual income tax turns 100 uh, next year. It started in 1913. Uh, and it's also available across a wide range of uh, countries. So with uh, Piketty, uh, indeed, we have uh, used those data to analyze income concentration in the United States. Uh, starting in 1913 when the data uh, start. And since then, uh, we've continued uh, this research agenda and many other re researchers have joined in so that a large number of countries, about 25, have now been uh, analyzed. And the, 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 those studies have been summarized in uh, various studies and we've put online in, a, in what we have called you know, the World Top Income uh, Database, which is a website that uh, you can easily go to and you can see, you know, in red the countries here that have been uh, studied. So most of Europe, North America, a few developing countries, and in blue, uh, the countries that are uh, currently being uh, studied. So let me show you some evidence from uh, this uh, collective research effort starting with uh, the United States. So this simple chart here 
uh, shows you uh, the share of total pre-tax income, so before uh, government taxes and before the, the, the government redistributes those taxes in part you know, in the form of transfers, that go to the top uh, 10% from 1917 to 2010. Okay, and so you, what you can see in this graph is that uh, the shape uh, of, of this curve as the forms a, a U with very high levels of income concentration with the top 10% capturing almost half of total income in the first part of the 20th century, then a precipitous drop during World War II that brings the share down you know, to the low uh, 30s. And you can see that for three decades, the top 10% income share stayed relatively low. And then, of course, the striking thing is what has happened in the last 30 years, where you see that share has grown up pretty much back uh, where it was at the beginning of the century, reaching you know, a peak of almost 50% in 2007. Note that it has dropped somewhat during the Great Recession, but you can see that already in 2010, it started uh, back up, showing that the Great Recession is certainly not an event that per se is going to dramatically change uh, the picture. Now, notice that the, the increase here uh, from 33 to 50% in... Um, 2007 is 17 points of total income have gone toward the top uh, 10%. What is striking is to see how concentrated uh, this phenomenon has actually been. And you can see that in the next chart where we decompose the top uh, 10% into three groups. So the famous uh, top 1% from the, uh, from the press, so in black, and then the next groups, the next 4% in blue, and the next 5% in red. So the combination of those three groups is what constitutes the top 10%. And so the striking thing that I want you uh, to notice is that most of the variations uh, actually come in the top 1% group, and in particular, the very large increase uh, since the late since the 1970s has really been concentrated in the top 1%. That goes you know, from 9% to a maximum of 23%. So it's 14 points out of those uh, 17 points I was mentioning before really uh, is a top 1% phenomenon. You can see that those upper middle class groups below increase slightly, but not uh, nearly uh, as much. And so Actually, the higher you go in the distribution, the more extreme uh, it is. So here we take the top 0.1% this time, and you see that the increase is captured only 2.5% you know, in the late 70s, and they reached a peak of about 12% in 2007. Okay? So given this evidence, uh, you, you may ask me, why do we care about top uh, income uh, shares. Don't we care more about how the middle class or the poor uh, are doing? So at the onset, I should say, you know, the, emphasize the first point. Inequality matters because people evaluate their economic well-being relative to others and not in uh, absolute terms. That is, if people were really behaving, you know, as most economic models assume, that is, you value how well you are doing only in absolute term. I probably wouldn't be here tonight with such a big group of people uh, listening uh, to me. 
inequality is interesting because the public cares about it, and they, the public cares about it because we don't function in, or we don't think in absolute terms. We think in uh, relative terms. Now, the second point I, I want to make for why top income shares uh, matter they matter because uh, those changes that I've pointed out to you have been actually uh, so large that they really dramatically affect uh, the way you value economic uh, performance country-wide. Uh, so to put it simply, uh, the surge of the top 1% 1, 1 income share has been so large that income growth of the bottom 99% is only about half uh, the growth of the average income in the economy. That is taking away uh, the top 1% and you divide by two uh, the growth rate, real growth rate uh, per family in the economy over the last uh, decades. Okay, and then of course, I can make points uh, three and four, that is the surge in top incomes uh, naturally gives top earners more ability to influence uh, the political uh, process, so a variety of uh, uh, pathway, you know, think tanks, lobbying, campaign funding, uh, etc. Even though we know, you know that, of course, it's not the sole determinant of uh, electoral outcomes, but certainly uh, they play a role and they play a growing role as their incomes uh, 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 increase. And finally, this in the end matters because uh, it can um, undermine uh, confidence of the public in the economic and political uh, uh, system. And when this confidence is undermined, of course, uh, the public will want uh, changes. And we hope that in a democracy, of course, those changes will take place through a democratic reform. And there are many historical uh, examples, and I'll come back uh, to them. So just to uh, show you uh, numbers, uh, uh, recent numbers that illustrate what I uh, uh, just said. So here in this table, I show you average income growth per family, you know, before taxes. So those are pre-tax uh, market income over the last 17 years, starting in 93 to 2010, average incomes have grown 14%, uh, which is not a very large uh, number. It's about you know, slightly less than 1% uh, per year. Top 1% incomes have grown much faster, almost 60% uh, income growth. And the striking thing is that when you remove the top 1% that has done so well and you look at the bottom 99%, uh, the growth is divided by about 2%. You know, it goes from 14% to 65 uh, 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 So that effectively the top 1% captures about half of total uh, economic growth. So here I've broken the period in a number uh, of sub-periods, you know, putting in red the recessions and in black uh, the expansions. And so in all periods, you know, in all expansions during the Clinton administrations, the Bush administrations, and the recent recovery, uh, the top 1% does a lot better than the bottom uh, 99%. But the, the difference was that in the Clinton administrations, the, top, the bottom 99% was still growing at a pretty fast uh, rate, so that inequality was not so much uh, on the radar screen, in the press, in the public, in the policy uh, discussion. That changed, you know, the, 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 the Bush expansion was different in the sense that there you really had an enormous difference with the uh, bottom incomes growing only 7% in the five years, you know, of the Bush uh, 
expansion relative to the, you know, the more than 20% growth during Clinton uh, administration. So, of course, during the Great Recession, both groups lost quite a bit of ground. The top 1% fluctuations are always bigger. Uh, in, uh, in recessions, but what is really striking is that the bottom 99% lost about 10% in real term, in per family income before government taxes and transfers. In reality, the net effect was lower thanks to uh, a number of transfer programs, you know, food stamps, etc., that kicked in and helped uh, unemployment insurance partly replace uh, those income. But this fall for the bottom 99% is truly uh, enormous. That is, we haven't seen anything like that since the Great uh, uh, Depression. And in the first year for which we have data, what is striking is that in the recovery, you know, 2.3% gain in 2010, almost all of that has gone to the top uh, 1% with virtually no growth yet for the bottom uh, 99%. Uh, so those numbers are striking and they illustrate why uh, inequality is uh, so much uh, discussed. So let me uh, continue with U.S. evidence showing you uh, something about uh, the composition of uh, top incomes, and that's uh, very important for the discussion that is going uh, to follow. So here it's, it's not super visible, but what this graph shows you, if you look at the top line here, it's the share of the top 0.1% what I showed you before. But what you see next is that for each year, uh, the income of the top 0.1% are decomposed into various groups, you know, starting with salaries, business income, capital income, and capital gains. And so what I want to point out is that in the early part of the 20th century, you see that the vast majority of top incomes was composed of capital income, which, has, which are returns on assets. So what happened is that here you have the gilded age where a few, you know, uh, uh, big uh, uh, business monopolies developed, you know, they were uh, nicknamed the robber barons, so build enormous fortunes. But then the robber barons here are old or they've passed the fortune to their heirs, and so these people at the top of the distribution are really, if you will, rentiers, people who live off the very large fortunes that were accumulated, you know, through business in the decades uh, before. And those fortunes come down dramatically, you know, during the Great Depression, the New Deal of Roosevelt, you know, World War II, and they stay relatively low. And then what you see here is a phenomenon that is quite a bit different. You, know, see, you see there is a lot less black here uh, than there, and there is a lot more uh, salaries. That is a dramatic increase here, uh, in top incomes has been first the creation, if you will, of new uh, fortunes. So you can think, you know, about the new companies that have emerged, you know, Microsoft, Google, Facebook, uh, etc., and also uh, new forms of jobs, you know, like the hedge fund uh, managers, etc., that have built uh, fortunes. The point is that those are new fortunes that people initially make through their uh, labor, okay? The most of the people now at the top have being self-made, or if you will, you know, they are earning their income through their labor. They are not inheriting huge fortunes from prior decades. And that's very important because uh, that affects a lot the way the public uh, perceives whether the process, you know, or inequality is fair or uh, unfair. Naturally, most people tend to think that in a well-functioning market, 
earned income uh, is fair. In contrast, you know, if you've received an enormous fortune uh, from uh, your uh, uh, parents, the public uh, values that a lot less, you know, and could understand why uh, you should uh, be taxed, you know, for example, through inheritance, uh, uh, taxation, uh, etc. So that certainly uh, uh, plays a role uh, in, uh, in the debate. So the, the next thing, I, so let, let me reemphasize that in the short run, uh, the top 1% has taken a hit uh, in the Great Recession because capital gains, stock options, business profits that constitute the bulk of top incomes uh, are hit uh, a lot harder. In contrast, uh, wage earners you know, that live below the top 1%, so in the top 10%, but not in the top 1%, uh, do uh, well. So you see this is a striking thing I, I haven't pointed out, but you see that during the Great Recession here where top incomes fall, you see that the next two groups do actually uh, gain, and the same was true during the Great Depression. So those are salaried people, you know, in the upper uh, uh, group, so you can think about uh, well-paid university professors uh, would, be, uh, would be an example of people living in those groups. We tend to keep our salaries, you know, even if there is uh, uh, there are budget cuts, uh, etc. We tend to do pretty well uh, in uh, in in bad times. But but the, the key thing for this from this graph is that you can see that during uh, recessions. So, for example, in the uh, dot com crash of 2000, top incomes also lost a lot. And actually, a lot of that was lost, you know, in California for you know new companies, etc. Uh, tech companies uh, collapse. But you see that that fall doesn't last. You know, the top incomes bounce back, and we are already seeing it uh, here uh, at the end of the Great Recession. The top incomes are starting to bounce back, and contrast that with the Great Depression here, where you, don't, you see them bouncing back a little bit, but not for long, and then they continue dropping, you know, during the New Deal and World War II. So this contrast is very important because it shows you, and that's something you can see as well in other countries, is that first, top incomes are hit by a shock. So it can be here a Great Depression. In other countries, it can be a war. But if there isn't a significant change in government policies, top incomes will typically bounce back. And in the historical case where they don't, it's because the government has really changed the rule of the game through you know, a number of regulatory and uh, 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 tax policies that drives down uh, the income concentration. So here in the current policy debate, certainly we are not contemplating uh, policy changes that are nearly as large as what was done uh, in, the, uh, in the New Deal. So uh, my best bet is that no matter you know, what the outcome is of the negotiation about the fiscal cliff between what uh, President Obama has proposed and what the Republicans uh, would like, those parameters are probably not radical enough to dramatically affect uh, the picture of uh, income concentration in, uh, in the United States. Okay, so now let me uh, go back to the World Top Income Database and give you some uh, international uh, perspectives. So let me uh, start here with uh, English-speaking uh, countries. So in this chart, uh, besides the United States in black, uh, I have put the United Kingdom in red and Canada in blue. 
and so what is striking in this chart is that all three countries follow pretty similar trends. All three curves are uh, U-shaped. They all start with high levels of income concentration. That's the top 1% uh, share. It falls a lot. You know, it falls even the most in the United Kingdom. And then it goes back up, perhaps not as much as in the U.S., but still uh, significantly uh, so. So you might ask maybe... Uh, this is uh, a universal uh, phenomenon, this uh, U-shape. This is actually not the case, because if we now look at continental Europe and Japan, so I've picked two European countries, France in black, Sweden in blue, and then Japan in red, you see that the first part of the picture looks quite similar to what we've seen for the English-speaking uh, countries, a dramatic drop that is this is very important. In the beginning of the 20th century, those European countries, Sweden, you know, who is now known as the most egalitarian country, had actually enormously high income concentration, actually off the chart, as you can see here for Sweden. You know, I've put the same scale as, uh, 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 as the U.S. And all three countries here do experience a large, uh, a large drop in income concentration that follows the historical pattern or the historical uh, events in each country. You see that for Japan, the dramatic event is uh, World War II, you know, and then the uh, U.S. Uh, uh, occupation and economic policies, you know, actually uh, decided by the U.S. France, you know, you have first a shock uh, in the 20s, then the war. Sweden has big shocks in the interwar period, not so much in World War II because they weren't part uh, of the conflict. Bottom line, you know, through different historical processes, all three countries have dropped down their income concentration dramatically, like the English-speaking countries. And so what is different is that in recent years, the increase in income concentration in those countries is not nearly as large as what has been experienced in the English-speaking uh, 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 countries. It has gone up uh, some, but you see, if you compare uh, the charts that are on the same scale, you see it's really, uh, uh, it's really quantitatively uh, very, uh, very different. So this point is important because it shows you that the very large increase in income concentration uh, for the United States is not a universal uh, phenomenon, which means that it cannot be explained solely uh, by, say, changes in technology and globalization because all those economies are advanced economies that go through pretty much uh, uh, the same technological you know, and globalization uh, forces. What those graphs uh, show you is that there is more than just um, technology. Obviously, the way uh, institutions and government policies react to technological changes uh, play a major role in the shaping of uh, income uh, concentration. So in terms of those uh, policies, I'm going to focus uh, next uh, on the role of uh, uh, top tax rates, which is indeed, I, I will hopefully convince you of that fact that this is a major component explaining uh, the changes in pre-tax, even before tax, uh, income uh, concentration. So you've, uh, all of you, I'm sure, have heard, have heard about uh, the debate on how much uh, we should tax the rich. Indeed, it is at the core of the negotiations uh, on the uh, fiscal cliff. But so here is uh, briefly summarized uh, the situation. So pre-tax top U.S. incomes have surged in recent 
uh, decades, with uh, the top 1% income share increasing from 9 to about 20% uh, today. Okay, so that means that, if you will, you know, there is a lot more money now at the top, so potentially a lot more income to tax. So there is perhaps, you know, a fiscal reserve has built up definitely at the top of the distribution. So in 2010, uh, top 1% income earners pay an average federal individual tax rate of 22%. And so that represents in taxes 2.6% of GDP. And so if you do a very naive computation and say, let's increase their tax from 22% on average to 33% in average, you would raise 1.3 GDP point, which is 200 billion uh, per year, which is, you know, according to the 10-year projection that is used uh, for formal budgeting, that would be 2.6 trillion. Obama has proposed raising taxes by about 1.6 trillion on this group, and that is about 1% of GDP, basically bringing back the taxes on top incomes to what it was in the early part of the Clinton administration. So it doesn't go from 22 to 33, but it would go from 22 to perhaps 28%. Uh, so obviously you can see that, uh, with those numbers that indeed the top 1% uh, has a large potential tax capacity, but higher taxes on the top 1% uh, might discourage economic activity encourage tax avoidance so that those naive calculations might not give you the right numbers uh, to really understand what would happen if we were to increase significantly taxes on uh, top earners. So uh, let me discuss uh, briefly economic effects of taxing the top 1%. I will show you that indeed there is strong uh, empirical evidence that pre-tax top incomes react to uh, top tax rates. That is, the naive calculation is wrong in the sense that uh, uh, there is a response uh, to uh, the tax system uh, at the top. However, just knowing that there is a response is not enough uh, to decide whether it's a good or bad thing to tax uh, top incomes. You have to understand uh, what is the mechanism uh, through which top incomes uh, respond. And here in this, in this uh, uh, slide, I've laid out three uh, scenarios. So the first one is the classical supply side uh, scenario. That's the conservative argument. You tax top earners more and they are going to work less and earn less. And in that scenario, obviously, uh, top tax rates should not be too high because it's uh, self-defeating above uh, some point. A second scenario uh, is about tax avoidance, uh, tax evasion. Uh, top earners are going to avoid or evade more uh, when top tax rate increases. So that increasing tax rates in the current system is also going to be uh, self-defeating. The very big difference, though, with this scenario is that if you're in scenario two, there is a smaller solution, which consists in first fixing uh, the tax system so that you eliminate uh, avoidance uh, opportunities. And there is a very large literature that's showing, indeed, that the rich are savvy about exploiting uh, tax avoidance uh, opportunities when they arise, but also that the government policies play a major role in shaping how many of those tax avoidance opportunities are 
uh, 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 present. So in that sense, you know, I agree with both uh, parties, uh, Republicans and Obama, that broadening the base at the top of the income distribution is uh, very important, and it is indeed a first basic step that you need to make if you want to effectively uh, be able to raise revenue uh, from the top. But then the, the second thing is that once you've broadened the base at the top, that's when precisely uh, you are in shape uh, and you are able uh, to raise uh, top uh, uh, tax rates. Now, a third uh, scenario that I want uh, to point out is uh, rent uh, seeking. And so with the uh, Occupy uh, Wall Street movement, that's a scenario that has been discussed much more widely uh, in the press. The idea there is that the very large gains uh, that we've seen in those uh, early charts, perhaps, are not due you know, to more economic activity created by the top 1%, but by the ability of the top 1% to extract, at the expense of the bottom 99%, a larger share of the uh, economic uh, pie. And it's possible that the top 1% is more able to extract a larger share of the pie when top tax rates are low because it gives them more incentives, uh, if you want, uh, to go more aggressively after higher levels of uh, compensation. Which means that top incomes are going to react to top tax rate, but the policy implication is radically different. In that case, you want high top tax rates precisely to prevent top earners from aggressively extracting a large uh, share of income. Okay, now, so I've laid out the three uh, theoretical scenarios, so which situation are we uh, in? The first graph I want to point out here is uh, going back to the top 1% in the U.S. Uh, in black, but now uh, I've put also on that graph uh, uh, with this scale here uh, in red, uh, the top marginal uh, tax rates on, uh, uh, for the federal individual tax rate. And so what you can see uh, very clearly is that the top individual tax rate was very high starting you know, with the end of the Great Depression, uh, World War II, post-World War II, and then came down dramatically uh, starting in the 70s. So that you can see that the red curve is the inverse image of the black curve, and remember, the black curve is pre-tax uh, income, uh, pre, you need the share of uh, total pre-tax income going to the top one percent, so that there, in principle there is no mechanical relationship uh, between uh, the two curves. So when you see uh, this evidence, and it's also uh, borne out by uh, uh, the analysis of other countries, uh, you have to conclude that indeed there is a strong relationship, that is if the U.S. were to go back to very high tax rate, like 70%, 80%, 90%, it's very unlikely that top incomes pre-tax would st stay at the very high level uh, that they are at uh, uh, now. So you see, just to put that in perspective, the debate uh, today is between Clinton versus Bush tax rate. So you see it's 39.6 versus 35. This is a minuscule change relative to the enormous uh, uh, changes in top tax rate that the U.S. has uh, uh, experienced. That's why I was saying early on that probably, you know, going back to Clinton is not going to dramatically affect 
uh, top incomes. But certainly, if we were going back, you know, to what it was under Carter, uh, you know, or Eisenhower, etc., uh, it would make a big difference. Okay. So now, of course, this uh, chart here uh, showing you the relationship between pre-tax incomes and top tax rates doesn't tell us in which of the three scenarios we are in, and it's critical to know uh, where we are in. So the first one I want to dispel is uh, the notion that tax avoidance explains everything. So that's a criticism that we've received now more from conservative circles saying, look, this is a nice chart, but perhaps it's a chart just showing you that the rich are savvy about avoiding uh, taxes and doesn't tell us anything about how really the rich, how rich they are relative to uh, the average because you are only picking up uh, tax avoidance, namely now top earners do report their full income and that's why they look so high. Back then with tax rates so high uh, they were hiding their income and that's why uh, you didn't see them on the tax uh, statistics. So the reason why uh, I think uh, this is not right is uh, for the following reason. To, so, to, to get this right, in principle here in black, you would want the full economic income of the top 1%. That is their income that is taxed according to the regular tax schedule plus the extra income uh, that, is avo that avoids you know, the very high tax rates by showing up in other forms that are tax-favored, okay? And it turns out that this black curve is the sum of the ordinary income tax at the high rates plus the tax-favored capital gains. That is, if I use uh, in this graph, if I add in this chart ordinary income, that's the white curve here, it is slightly lower, but you can see that overall it follows the black pretty closely, in the sense that the gap between the two are capital gains that are taxed at a very preferential rate over the full period. So if the conservative critic was right, this gap should be enormous uh, in the 1960s when the gap in the two tax rates was uh, so large and it should be smaller, you know, in the period where that gap uh, closes uh, down. So it's in some sense that's perhaps the simplest way I can try to convey to a broad audience why I, we think, you know, studying those uh, things carefully that tax avoidance uh, cannot explain uh, those trends. Uh, so now, if, if it's not uh, tax avoidance, it, it really becomes a stark debate between the supply-siders, uh, you know, the top 1% are job creators, and by taxing them a lot, you're going to kill jobs versus the rent-seeking scenario, the top 1%, you have to tax them, or otherwise they are going to extract uh, a lot more, you know, and steal if you want from the rest of uh, uh, the economy, namely the bottom uh, 99%. Uh, so how do we uh, tell apart those two uh, strikingly different scenarios? So first let me say that uh, I don't have a definitive proof. What I'm going to show you are a few uh, suggestive uh, uh, chart. That's a very big question. I wish, you know, economics was advanced enough that I could give you, you know, the uh, uh, true answer, but at least the goal of economists is precisely to try and understand uh, those things. So, if we are in the rent-seeking scenario, uh, the growth of top 1% income uh, should come at the expense of uh, the bottom 99%, uh, and conversely. And indeed, 
what is striking in the U.S. is that in the historical record, the growth of the top 1% income versus uh, the bottom uh, 99% income looks uh, that way. That is, it is not uh, a tide that lifts uh, all boats uh, together. It really looks like uh, when the bottom 99% is doing well, the top 1% is doing poorly. And conversely, when the bottom 99% is doing poorly, the top 1% is doing well. So this uh, chart shows you that. So here I've shown in white the evolution of bottom 99% income, and in black, top 1% incomes starting from a base 100 in 1913. And so what you can see is that first part, you know, all groups do poorly because of the great... Uh, 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 depression, but starting with the, uh, the end of the Great Depression, the New Deal, you see that the bottom 99% jumps up and grows actually very fast, up to the early 70s, while the top 1% grows very modestly. In contrast, starting in the late 1970s, the top 1% uh, start increasing uh, very fast, while growth for the bottom 99% uh, slows down uh, dramatically. Okay, so you see that uh, indeed, you know, the, you hear uh, a lot, perhaps more among uh, economists, that in the end growth uh, trumps everything, and that's true if you look perhaps at two or three centuries, but if you look at just uh, a few decades, uh, it doesn't look uh, uh, like that. That is, one group can experience a very different uh, growth. Uh, situation than in other groups, and that uh, and that shows up uh, here. So, uh, of course, uh, this evidence is not uh, enough to conclude. So, so you would want to see, you know, to bring more data, and that's what the World uh, Top Income Database uh, can uh, help you with to to see whether the the, the patterns that we've seen uh, for the U.S. are uh, borne out in uh, other uh, countries. So uh, the, the first thing that is very easy, for which we have very good evidence and that I can be confident about, is the first thing, that is that the fact that there is a strong link between top tax rates and how much the top 1% uh, gets is uh, indeed uh, true. So the best way to see this is to look at the evolution over time. So this is the world in, 19, in the early 1960s, where I've put uh, the top marginal tax rate here, so how much a, a, a measure of the tax uh, burden on uh, very top uh, incomes against the top 1% income share. So that's, in, in that time in the 1960s, top income shares are not very high. Most countries are below uh, 10%, and there is a distribution of tax rates, but you can see that a very large number of those rich countries are adopting you know, top tax rates that are very high, very high from today's uh, perspective. And what is striking here is that actually the U.S. and the U.K. were the most extreme uh, countries in terms of how high uh, they were setting their top uh, tax rates. You know, countries like France and Sweden were not as extreme as the U.S. and the U.K. Now, turn to the world as it is today, and you can see that the dots all shifted uh, to the left. That is, today there's no country that tax top earners at more than uh, 60%. And at the same time, 
uh, the dots moved to the left, they also moved back up uh, in that direction. So as top tax rates uh, went down, uh, the top 1% pre-tax started to do better, of course, with the U.S. being the most uh, extreme uh, case, so that if you really plot the change against the change that is by how much the country cuts its top marginal tax rates from the 60s to the present and how well the top does, that is by how much the top 1% income share increases, you can see that there is a very strong uh, correlation here. You know, with the U.S. being the case study, the most extreme case study that I described uh, in detail, but you can see that more or less the countries array themselves, you know, along a diagonal. Uh, here, the countries that don't cut their top tax rates, and there are a number of them, uh, don't see much change in top income tax share. The countries that cut a lot tend to see very large uh, uh, increases. Now, of course, that doesn't answer whether, you know, it's a good or a bad policy again. So what you want to know, the ultimate question, actually, where the debate really focuses on is that, is cutting uh, the top tax rate good for economic growth uh, or not? And again, you can use, at, uh, uh, use this uh, array of countries. So if you just plot, again, you know, the same countries by how much they cut their top marginal tax rate since the 1960s and how growth has been doing at the macroeconomic level, you know, GDP per capita, real annual growth. I see a cloud that bears no relationship uh, apparently with tax policy, but the, the cloud is really dispersed in the sense that countries that were very poor in 1960, like Portugal, Ireland, Japan, grow very fast, while countries that were a lot richer, like Switzerland and the US, uh, of course, grow slower. So this is not very informative. So to tighten that cloud, uh, you want to control for initial growth, which is uh, what we do here. So this is growth per capita, taking into account that some countries start richer than others in 1960, so naturally are not going to grow as fast. So you see that the cloud tightens, but it's hard to see a very strong link here. That is, if the uh, conservatives were right, we should see a diagonal here. If the Occupy Wall Street were right, it should be totally uh, flat because uh, changing the top tax rate changes, you know, the way income gets distributed, but doesn't affect uh, growth. And, you know, it, it, perhaps it goes down slightly, but it's not significant statistically. If you look at the U.S. and the U.K., they have a growth experience that is no better, you know, than countries like Finland, you know, or Germany uh, that have had dramatically different uh, tax uh, uh, policies. So again, uh, this is an analysis at the uh, macro level. It doesn't prove the case, but it shows you that just by a comparison of countries, it's hard uh, to detect strong growth effects of uh, cutting uh, 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 taxes, uh, taxes at the top, while it is very easy to detect uh, a change in income distribution pre-tax by cutting taxes, uh, uh, taxes uh, at the top. Okay, so to conclude uh, my uh, presentation, so the U.S. Uh, historical evidence and the international evidence uh, shows that tax policy plays a key role in the shaping of the pre-tax uh, income gap. High uh, top tax rates 
reduce the pre-tax income gap, perhaps apparently without hurting economic growth, so that, you know, looking at the choices uh, uh, the U.S. faces, if it's a discussion between the Obama plan and the Republican uh, plan, the changes here in tax rates are not so large that they are going to dramatically affect the pre-tax income gap. So indeed, you will get more revenue by taxing uh, the rich more, but you are not going to fundamentally change uh, the inequality uh, dynamic. Now, will the public favor, we know that the public is in favor of slightly higher taxes uh, 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 on the rich. In the end, my reading you know, of the historical uh, evidence and the, and the present evidence is that the public will favor more progressive taxation only if it is convinced uh, that top income gains are detrimental to the bottom uh, 99%. So in the same way that uh, during the, after the Great Depression and during the New Deal when those top incomes were accumulated fortunes that didn't really mean much for economic growth because they were coming from the past, you know, so they were criti- the, the, the rich were criticized as uh, rentiers and the public was willing to, have, to accept a dramatically different uh, tax system. I think for the public uh, to accept, again, you know, very high tax rates, uh, the psyche or the, uh, really has uh, to change uh, in, uh, in this direction. And that's why uh, the type of... Uh, economic analysis, really understanding really what, what happens and what drives uh, those changes at, at the top are so important for uh, tax uh, policy. So uh, let me uh, uh, stop here, and I'm happy to take uh, some questions. Question number one. Looking at the historical record What is the likelihood that high income inequality in the U.S. can be reversed without violence? For example, wars, either external or internal. Uh, That's a good and difficult question. So I would say that, again, if we look at the historical record, uh, a dramatic drop in income concentration almost always happens with a big shock first. Uh, A big shock that the government has not directly or purposedly manufactured, so it can be a Great Depression in the United States. It can be uh, World War II in a country like uh, 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 Japan. However, uh, the shock uh, is not enough. The shock really needs then to lead to dramatically different uh, policy. So the U.S. had its shock uh, recently, you know, in the Great uh, Recession. Uh, I think that would have been the time uh, really to uh, change dramatically uh, uh, policymaking regarding, you know, policies regarding the rich, you know. So it was done a little bit on the regulatory side, you know, with financial regulation uh, that was uh, increased but not increased nearly as much as it was increased during the Great Depression. On taxes, uh, at the top, we didn't see anything because we saw, you know, an extension of the uh, 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 Bush tax cuts. And I think, I mean, personally, I view that as a missed uh, opportunity because in 2009, you could explain to the public, you know, that this dramatic increase in income concentration, a lot of it coming from finance, uh, 
did not bring good effects in the U.S. economy, and that was the moment, perhaps, you know, to uh, convince the public. So it didn't happen. We're out of this crisis to, to, to some extent. So I don't see a dramatic change, you know, in uh, U.S. economic policy in the foreseeable future without seeing first, you know, s some sort of dramatic, uh, dramatic event. Okay, thank you. Um, this is, uh, this is a sort of related question to what you, the point you were just making, uh, a question about timing. Why are you telling us this, this story now and not years ago when it might have counteracted the Tea Party? <laughs> okay, so, so on, on this one, I would say that we've been telling this story for a very long time. Uh, time actually, we, we we did that. U.S. study first came out, you know, at the very beginning of 2001. You know, so more than 10 years ago. But at that time, I mean, it was just the beginning of the dot-com uh, crash. But it, it had been such a good growth experience in the United States, you know, in the 1990s that really inequality was not at all on the uh, radar. Uh, screen, so the press wasn't necessarily that interested uh, in this type uh, of story. So it took years, you know, as the public uh, and the press was experiencing some sort of disconnect uh, between relatively good economic performance during uh, the Bush administration. If you look at GDP growth uh, measures, they didn't look uh, bad, and yet people were feeling that they were not getting ahead, and that's when our numbers started uh, getting traction because they could explain why the bottom 99% wasn't feeling uh, a large fraction uh, of that growth. Okay. Uh, a question related to the uh, first question about violence. Um, do you think there is a danger of political turmoil worsening if economic inequality is not reined in? Yes, so this is, yes, so actually I, I should have said that in the first question, so I'm glad to have a chance uh, to go back to it. Uh, I didn't show you that chart about uh, developing uh, countries because that shows income concentration in Argentina, South Africa, and the U.S. So what I want to say is that the U.S. here you can see as a level now of income concentration that is comparable to developing countries that are known to have extremely high levels of income concentration. And indeed, uh, an issue for those countries, uh, and in that, that, that's, of course, very well known in Latin America, that is the political turmoil in many Latin American countries, comes uh, from issues of inequality. That is a feeling that there is uh, an unfair distribution of wealth and economic resources and hence uh, incomes uh, that led people to choose uh, radical policy options and then with uh, counter-revolution and you end up with uh, right-wing dictatorships fighting, you know, uh, uh, left-wing areas, etc. But uh, political turmoil that is definitely very harmful uh, to economic uh, development. So that has been the situation in a number of Latin American countries. But the case of uh, Europe and other uh, countries shows you that you can have changes in policies that are not accompanied uh, with uh, economic turmoil. That is, you can have situations where, you know, like the, the United States is actually a good example, where uh, you can have really radical 
policies regarding top incomes with tax rates that are just uh, uh, seem inconceivable today, you know, above uh, 70%, and that being accepted uh, by the vast majority of the public and actually both uh, major uh, political uh, 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 parties. So I would say uh, there is a risk. We, we don't know how it is going to uh, uh, turn out. I hope, you know, it will be a repeat of the New Deal rather than uh, a situation like uh, uh, Chile or Argentina. Okay, and um, following on that question, um, do you see any relationship between your research and the growing incidence of land grabs uh, for agriculture and mining investment primarily in the global south by large corporate equity and uh, even national investors? On this one, I I would say yes, the the, the land uh, grab and uh, uh, land reform is at the core, you know, of the issue of redistribution in developing uh, countries, because the way inequality manifests itself, you know, in a country like, I mean, not so, so much now, uh, like Argentina was in it by very unequal uh, land division. So, so one of the first things uh, that you want to do to try to improve redistribution is what's called land reform, that is uh, uh, sharing the land more equally. And there are also theories that says that that's good for growth because then it motivates the small landowners to work hard uh, uh, on their plot. So in that way, of course, this is not uh, relevant for an economy like the U.S. Uh, uh, the US uh, uh, today, but it was historically an important uh, 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 phenomenon. It's also, it's, it's also interesting... Related, I mean, it's peripheral to this question, but I think it's, it is very interesting that probably if we, if we had been able to go back further in the past here, you know, in the 1800s, the U.S. probably had less uh, inequality if you exclude the, the slave uh, problem, which is a, a very big one. But if you look only at uh, uh, whites, probably there was less inequality in a country like the U.S., than in Europe, in large part because uh, land was more equally distributed in the U.S. I mean, it was so abundant that a lot of people uh, uh, could get, you know, relatively large uh, shares of land. What, what in a country like France, and my co-author Thomas Piketty has done, uh, studied the income or the, the economic uh, disparity in a country like France, you know, at the eve of the French Revolution was just uh, astonishing. So it just shows you that with the same method, you can go back in the past using also, you know, uh, uh, tax records and and look at those uh, issues of uh, uh, land uh, distribution. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.